I said to myself, there's no point in hiding this. There's no point in acting like it didn't happen because I don't want to give off the impression that I'm ashamed of it or embarrassed or that it doesn't count for anything. So I was very upfront about it. I, I put it on my resume. Whether you're a professional dancer or just started falling in love with ballet dance, welcome to the Ballet Dance Live podcast. Here, we are diving deep into all facets of ballet dance world that cannot be found in a workshop or an audience seat. Every week, you will find new, honest, thought-provoking, inspiring, and educational conversation with top leading professionals of our industry. I'm your host, Jana Komornitska, and I'm honored that you are part of our dance tribe. This episode is brought to you by the Yana Dance Club, online platform where you can get access to all my teaching materials at once. Hundreds of technique drills, multiple choreographies, themed intensives, full-length courses, everything you can think about. Whether 20 minutes or few hours for practice, you will find a program that will fit not only your schedule, but your mood as well. First seven days are free, so check it out at yanadanceclub.com, link in the show notes. Hello, dear dancers, how are you doing? Hope everyone is uh, healthy, safe, and in a good mood. This is a new episode of Ballet Dance Life podcast, and right now we are at a very exciting point, because this is our fourth season, fourth year that I am releasing these interviews and we are at a very interesting point that sometimes we can come back to our previous guests and catch up what was going, what was happening during last three years. For instance, with our today's guest, Luna of Cairo, last time that we talked to her it was a turning point in her life that she moved back to us after 10 years of a full-time dance career in Cairo and I remember talking about this decision about her excitement about upcoming years and now three years afterwards in our fourth season we are catching up on those changes and uh, symbolically we were laughing at some point of the podcast it's another turning point in her life too (laughs) but it's very interesting that sometimes i will be featuring now our previous guests and it will be kind of a continuation of our previous conversations because dance it's definitely a journey and just the same way as life is a continuous journey and things happen, things change, things evolve, and sometimes they twist in completely different directions or get new viewpoints or new perspectives on what was happening even earlier in our lives. So our today's guest is Luna of Cairo, an international ballad and star who performed in Egypt's top hotels and Nile cruises from 2009 to 2018. She has an exceptional, exciting style of dance and has been featured on Egyptian television just as well as she appeared in the music videos of some of the most popular singers in Egypt, as well as movies. Luna is in high demand to teach ballet dance workshops around the world. She has taught all over United States, Canada, Puerto Rico, Egypt, England, Poland, Japan, you name it. She's also a regular teacher at Raya Hassan 
Ahlan was Ahlan festival, which takes place every summer in the Mena House Hotel. In addition to her dancing, Luna holds a master's degree in Middle Eastern studies from Harvard University. She studied radical Islamic movements in the Arab world. She's fluent in Egyptian, Arabic, Spanish, and English, and holds a BA in journalism and political science. In our today's conversation, we talked not only about dance life and changes in dance activities, but also so-called regular life. And Luna was sharing her experience of applying to her, let's say, regular non-dance jobs with resume, which has a 10-year gap of uh, being completely dedicated to ballet dance as well as dealing with her colleagues and, uh, of course, also touching the question of stigmas and stereotypes about dance and, in general, how dance influence sort of day-to-day life of uh, non-dance activities. I'm very sure that many dancers uh, or many of our listeners will be able to relate to this subject because uh, we often identify ourselves as dancers forgetting that there is life also beyond dance too and for some of us it may coexist together with our dance activities for some of us it may suddenly happen that oh we need to deal with something else for instance last few years showed a lot of examples then dancers had to deal with non-dance jobs non-dance activities just to support themselves and even without any unusual worldwide circumstances or anything like that, sometimes when we get to retirement age, we start thinking about maybe doing something non-dance related to support us. So this is a very important and I think in-demand topic to discuss and to think about. And I'm pretty sure that Luna, with her example and her experience, will inspire you and give you some extra confidence for those who may need it right now in terms of dealing with non-dense life as a fully dedicated either currently or in the past, belly dancer. So, on this note, let's dive in right now. Hello, dear Luna. Welcome back to the podcast. And I am very excited to catch up again with you after three years. Last one we did was 2018 and now 2021. Uh, Welcome back to the podcast and thank you for sharing your time with us today. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for having me again. And it's been three years. Time really flies. I feel like we just spoke yesterday. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So for everyone who is listening to us right now and uh, possibly missed the previous episode, don't worry, I will include link in the show notes to the description and I highly encourage to go back and listen to that episode because I'm pretty sure we're not going to repeat the same conversation today. Uh, So go back because uh, we discussed with Luna a lot about her, about your Luna's um, years in Cairo, experience in Cairo, and also the decision to transition and move back to US. And that was exactly the point that we were doing uh, interview you just arrived to us and we were also discussing how difficult was decision to 
move to leave Cairo and to come back to uh, to US and uh, at the same time you were very excited about like this new chapter so I would like to start uh, I guess from there these three years uh, in US transitioning from full-time very busy very active performance career in Egypt now figuring out things in uh, US how does it feel for you and uh, what was the most um, let's say exciting things that you were thinking about when you decided okay I'm moving back to US what was literally the most like I guess what I would put it this way like the most exciting thing about this new chapter of your life and this transition for you as a dancer okay really good question um so, yes, going back three years, I would say the most exciting thing about my decision to come back to the U.S. was the idea of change itself. Um, I am a big believer in change. Um, I think that even when it's painful, it's necessary, and it's almost always a good thing. And even if that change itself winds up being negative or pulling you in the wrong direction, uh, change does trigger more change. So even a change in the wrong direction can prompt you to then, hey, well, I'm used to changing things now, so I'm going to do um, something a little different. So that in and of itself is the most exciting thing. Um, I'm not going to lie to you and say that uh, not dancing every single day was going to be fun for me. No, it wasn't. But I had to stay positive on some level and say that yeah, this is the right thing to do because at that point I had been in Egypt for 10 years, pretty much straight um, with the exception of uh, a month vacation every year. And so it was just on a spiritual level, on a psychological level, on an emotional level, it was getting very overwhelming. Um, 10 years in a place will do that to you, especially if that place is, not as dynamic as other places. And what I mean by that is that, um, like many countries around the world, Egypt, is a, um, its, its concept of nationality is one that's based on on race and common history and common culture. It's, it's not like the United States or like Canada where um, we're a country of immigration. We're very progressive in comparison. So things are constantly changing here. A lot of diversity in the U.S., a lot of diversity in places like Canada, even Western Europe. And you do have diversity in a country like Egypt, but not nearly, not nearly as much intellectual diversity, not nearly as much cultural diversity. So uh, just to be frank, it just started to get a little bit boring and predictable for me. Um, I could kind of just predict how people were going to act in situations and the things they were going to say. And uh, I became too familiar with the way they think. And it just stopped being challenging to me and it stopped being a growing experience. Um, and really that is what I'm looking for out of any experience in life to become a better person, to grow, to, to learn new things. And I had stopped doing that probably within five years of my stay in Egypt. And I was in denial about that for the next five years. And finally, I said, all right, I, I got I to gotta do something else with my life. 
So that was the exciting part to coming back to to US. And from dance perspective, like uh, seeing your dance activity, your dance career uh, back in US, I, I remember you were talking a lot about like teaching opportunities that you saw for yourself. Yeah, teaching uh, is naturally something that can fall into if you move back home after a very long career in Cairo. Uh, that was picking up for a while. I had been traveling and doing some festivals and workshops, and then Corona hit, kind of put the kibosh on all of that for everybody temporarily. And then there was this worldwide transition to online teaching, which uh, I had done for a while, actually. That presented its own set of challenges, like anything else. Um, and then, interestingly, because I live in Florida, it's uh, it's been a lot more liberal here um, vis-a-vis COVID policies and lockdowns and who's allowed to go out and when and where. And so the nightlife had picked up probably four months into the whole crisis in 2020. So I actually... Um, I began dancing again, performing in the venues that I had been in before, taking as much precaution as I could, but also not wanting to be in panic and fear mode anymore. Um, and and everything was fine. And you know, things are right now sort of picking up again. I have put dancing on the back burner, uh, performing, and by extension, teaching, uh, just because I've got a different set of life circumstances right now. And... Um, Again, you know, going on that theme of change. So while my dance life has changed dramatically since I got back from Cairo, I am still doing it, even if it's just performing on the weekends and teaching online or teaching at workshops every now and then. And um, unfortunately, I've I've noticed that, and this is something I've, I've never said before, and I don't think too many people have said before, I've noticed that it's... Um, not very good for my personal life. Um, it has never been. When I was in Cairo, my personal life was a wreck. Um, and there are reasons for that. I mean, if you're interested, we can get into that. But even here, even here in the U.S., um, when you do this type of work, as we all know, there are certain types of assumptions that people make about you. And it is also true that there's a certain type of person that's attracted to you and attracted to that. And usually that comes with an agenda attached to it. And I wish it didn't take me years to figure this out, but I'm at the point in my life where I have to prioritize my personal life. And I would just be foolish to not admit that my dancing is really pulling that in the wrong direction and negatively impacting that. So I said, okay, I am going to take a little break. Um, I'm going to see if if this opens up different opportunities in my life, if it allows me to meet different kinds of people with different mentalities and different um, priorities. And I also just want to see on a personal level if I can do it because this dance has really defined who I am as a person, not just as an artist. It has become embedded in who I am. And my personality. And while that sounds really glamorous, um, I think that on a mental health level, that that's not really a good thing. 
And so I said to myself, I, I want to see if I can take control of this because it is a form of addiction. I need to get on top of this. I can't let it get on top of me. I can't let it define who I am. Um, I don't think it's it's good to be that attached to something or for that matter. Uh, so I'm not saying that I'm not going to get back into it. I, I will, but it's got to be on my terms and I need to be in control of it, not it in control of me as it always has been. So that's where I'm at right now. Um, it's been about two months since I sort of put all of my dance activity on the side. And I've actually taken a second part-time job, something that I never thought that I would do and something that I was highly discouraged from doing when I was growing up, and, and that is being a waitress, <laughs> waiting tables. Uh, first of all, just from a practical standpoint, I said I, I need to supplement the income that I'm now going to be losing from not doing gigs and even not teaching. And I was made aware of how much servers can, can make these days. So I said, let me try that. Um, I've never been in a line of work where you're at someone's beck and call and you need to you need to just really sharpen your customer service skills. You know, I think a lot of people know that I, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, so my patience can be a little limited sometimes. And, you know, how much how much nonsense I'm willing to take from people might be you know, a little less than others. So this has been a real challenge for me on a personal level, dealing with people um, on a very one-to-one basis. And I like how fast-paced it is, how it doesn't leave me any time to think or ruminate about any, you know, personal concerns or anything like that. When you're waiting tables, you need to be on. You need to... You need to be using your short-term memory, which is um, <laughs> which is a good thing. You cannot be thinking about anything else because you don't want to mess up people's orders. You don't want to be late in your delivery. So it's been fun, actually. Um, and at this point, I can honestly say that I've transitioned into a very, very American lifestyle, which you know I, I have never had. So it's kind of weird. Um, it's also very interesting. I don't know how long this event is going to last, but... <laughs> mm -hmm. But sounds also actually very, I don't know, to me, what you just said sounds very exciting in terms like you're trying like completely different lifestyle, not only from what you had in Cairo, which is like miles and miles and miles away in terms of experience, not in terms of even geography, just like experience and lifestyle, but even from what you had in US and you came back. And I'm very curious if you don't mind sharing your experience of applying for a regular job that probably they were asking you, oh, what's your previous experience and uh, like talking about, I don't know, your dance career, maybe you didn't talk about it at all, because this is the question that um, some dancers do get at different levels of their uh, stages of their life because of different circumstances. Someone cannot continue dance career because of health reason. Some people uh, face this situation that they are getting closer to retirement age and uh, like they cannot keep performing. And uh, we had some of our guests too taking completely different jobs uh, 
like uh, just to make sure that they are ready for their future retirement etc so for you like for so many years you were working just as a dancer and then finding and applying for completely different uh uh, sphere, completely different occupation. Uh, how was that application process? Because they probably were asking the standard questions about your work experience and etc. And uh, like how to deal with that. <laughs> okay, that's a <laughs> that's an interesting question, and it's funny because um, it is a problem. However, <laughs> I uh, I just want to clarify that I still have my full time job that I got about two and a half years ago. So I'm still doing that. Um, waiting tables is something I just do on the side for fun. But for you know, my full-time job, it required a very specific skill set, which was um, Arabic language. Um, can't get too into this stuff um, in public. But I just put my resume in. And of course, it had a big gap in it in terms of professional experience, quote unquote. I put down what I'd been doing for the past 10 years. Because first of all, if I don't, it looks really bad. Second of all, we live in an era in which nothing is, is hidden. There are no secrets. People just pop your name into Google or they do other types of background checks and they're going to find everything out about you. And, you know, I am, uh, I used to joke around on Facebook all the time. Oh, I'm famous, right? You know, social media. Yeah. You think people aren't going to find me? <laughs> YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. You can't not find me. It's the case with most of us dancers. So I said to myself, there's no point in hiding this. There's no point in acting like it didn't happen because I don't want to give off the impression that I'm ashamed of it or embarrassed or that it doesn't count for anything. So I was very upfront about it. I, I put it on my resume. Of course, I emphasized the managerial and cultural and administrative aspects of what I used to do, right? So like managing an orchestra, um, dealing with cross-cultural issues, learning the language, mastering it, speaking it, teaching it. You know, these are the things that I emphasize, not not so much that, hey, I used to wiggle around on the stage every night, you know, because that's not going to get me anywhere. But um, it actually, it worked to my advantage, if only because it, it piqued people's curiosity. I... I got phone calls from potential employers and kind of like I was reading between the lines of their questions. And it was kind of like, are you real? Is this a real person? Cause not, not only do I have like 10, 10 years of belly dancing on there, but I've got my previous professional experience, you know, from my past life before I moved to Cairo. And I've got, I've got some really interesting things on there working for the New York times, working for the New York state Senate, working for, um, an international NGO that was uh, affiliated with the International Criminal Court. So I've got some pretty like heavy experience on there and then all of a sudden belly dancer. <laughs> uh, so people were like, oh, and then I have my, my master's from Harvard and they're like, this can't be a real person. What does belly dancing have to do with all of this other stuff, all of these other um, credentials that this person has? So I just said, hey, this is where life took me. I'm a very grab life by the you know what type of person. And um, I do things that most other people don't do. I throw myself into situations because that's, that's what I thrive on. I thrive on novelty and challenge. Um, and now I'm back. And because of that experience, I have accumulated a whole bunch of skills that 
I wouldn't have if I hadn't done that. And that people who don't leave the States do not acquire. So it actually, um, I think it made me more attractive as the candidate. Um, it also disqualified me from other positions that I was looking for because, um, you know, depending on what you're applying for and what institution you're dealing with, they may see that extended period of time overseas as a liability. Well, you know, where's your loyalty? Do you have connections to entities overseas that could be nefarious or anything like that? So really it depends on you know, what position you're applying for and what you're doing. Um, but yeah, I found, you know, <laughs> a job, thank God. And the other challenge was meeting my coworkers because, of course, you know, and I'm, I have to just use this image and sorry if it's a little, <laughs> if it's a little crass, but, you know, when dogs meet each other in a park for the first time, what do they do? How do they introduce themselves to each other? They go around sniffing each other in the, in the behind, right? And it's it's really funny and there's so many memes that are made about that. I kind of had the same feeling when I started my new job. It's like, well, there's a new dog in the pool now and we got to find out, you know, what do they eat? <laughs> Who are they? So all of this getting to know you introduction stuff started to happen. And they were like, well, what's your background? You've been doing. Yeah. I've been in Egypt for the past 10 years. And the assumption was that I was doing the same kind of work that they had been doing. So when they would ask me, I would just have to say no and be honest about it because guess what? We have this thing called Google. And if I tell them I was doing anything other than what I was doing, and I mean, just out of curiosity, they're going to pop my name into Google. They're going to see all my dancing videos and my blog and this and that. And me not being upfront about it and them finding out is going to give the impression that I am, again, embarrassed about it, ashamed of it, trying to hide it. And no. I'm not. I'm not. I didn't do anything wrong. Um, you know, some people might have a problem with it, but me being honest about it shows it, it, it kind of hacks away at the idea that there's something wrong with it. So I really, I always, I always go for honesty. I like that honest approach. And yeah, it worked to my advantage. Um, I had to entertain a lot of questions from people like, how does that happen? How could you do something like that? And, you know, it, it actually, it sparked a lot of conversation. It was a doorway for me to become, you know, friendlier with my coworkers. And, I, and I'm, I'm actually one of the only people in our institution that doesn't have problems with anybody. And I think it's because I let that human personal side out at the very beginning. And so I was able to connect with everybody. Um, so it, it's been nice um, in that respect. Mm. oh so much stuff like on my mind right now from <laughs> from your story that you just shared like first of all to come back to your resume story like if to joke about it i would say mention validance is the best trick to get att attention to your resume i guess <laughs> um, yeah yeah <laughs> but on the serious note of course it's so sad that um in general, in the like, let's say corporate world, or like, I don't want to put it like a regular world, but non-dense world, 
mentioning uh, ballet dance completely change uh, people's attitude to you and we heard so many stories uh, from also our previous podcast guests who combine having some professional like, career in uh, science or business like or any any field and ballet dance on the side and how how much it influences if they mention or not mention like people's approach so that's really sad at the same time you just said something uh very very amazing because i think um i think for like real like uh, professional dancers in terms of experience who many years in ballet dance uh and uh, have some i don't know they can kind of have like inner stick in themselves uh they usually will like will approach it the same way but for people who may be doing ballet dance just on the side or just love belly dance they're like uh, having belly dance as a hobby and if they mention about belly dance even as a hobby they still may get the same reaction from people but what you just said if you don't show that there is something wrong with it if you're not ashamed if you're not apologizing about it if you're just showing it like and saying about it confidently and uh, like openly it also creates different impression and uh, probably will be different reactions from people because it's like uh, i mean to continue your comparison uh, metaphor with like dogs we kind of can fear uh smell the uncertainty or like fear or like i don't know some shame uh, sensations in how we present and how we talk so it's also about not only reaction from people but how much uh, this conflict we may have inside ourselves that may result in how we present this information to people yes very good observation uh which leads me to my next point everything is psychology and everything is presentation and marketing. You market yourself every single day and not even for just professional reasons. Just when you meet somebody, we all put on some kind of front or some kind of act. Or if we don't want to use that word because it sounds like you know we're being uh, deceptive, so we all show different aspects of ourselves. Uh, and we select which ones we're going to show depending on the context. Um, so... At that point, I did not have any kind of internal conflict about who I am or what I was doing. I do realize how it's perceived, but um, like I said, my approach was to just be very open about it. And, you know, I, I'm over the point of saying it's unfortunate that we're not accepted. And this, it's, not, it's not that we're not accepted, but it's that, hey, if I've been dancing in Egypt for 10 years, how does that qualify me to get the position that I have right now? It doesn't. What qualified me was that I have strong language skills and strong cultural skills. I also have an academic background that, yeah, it's pretty far in the past, but it's, it's no small matter. So it's that that got me hired, you know, not the fact that I'm a belly dancer. Um, vice versa. If you're a corporate lawyer, can you just storm into Cairo and be like, hey, I'm going to take the stage and I'm going to belly dance and you don't have any experience belly dancing. You don't know what the heck you're doing. Of course not. No one's going to want to look at you. So it goes both ways. You, you get the positions you're qualified for. Um, and at the end of the day, we all make our choices, right? And I, I noticed there's a trend in the belly dance community, and, and, and this is not a judgment. It's an observation. And I'm guilty of doing this, too, at certain points in my dance career. We wail about how, oh, people, you know, they don't understand us, and they think that we're uh, prostitutes and sex workers. It's like, yeah. 
that's what it is. That is how the, that is how the, um, audiences over there, the culture in which this dance came from perceives it. What are you going to do about it? You can't change it. To be quite honest, it's not even our place to change it. That is not your job as a guest dancer in this, in this culture. You know what you're getting into. You know what the assumptions are. You chose to do it. Deal with it. And I would say that to anybody. Um, I had to deal with it. Oh, excuse me. That's my puppy. <laughs> who's, also, who's also from Cairo. She was a rescue from Cairo. But, um, <laughs> yeah. So you know what you're signing up for. You know what the territory is. And uh, call it occupational hazard. Every job has it. And, and in belly dancing, this is what it is. You're going to be perceived a certain way. You're going to attract a certain type of person uh, in your personal life. For the most part, unless you already have a pre-existing relationship from your, your home country, which is great. More power to you. Not everything in life, actually nothing in life is on your terms. You know, they, they have this expression in Arabic. The universe is not, uh, does not bend to anybody's wishes, to anybody's mood. Uh, and I really like that expression because... You know, it just reminds us that we're not in complete control of everything. Yeah, we can create our own reality to a certain extent and we can attract things in our life, you know, via our energy. And, and I'm aware of all that. I'm aware of all the, the spiritual practices and philosophies. But at a, certain, at a certain point, you hit this hard wall of realization that says that there are things that are out of our control. Um, and so you either make your peace with it and you accept it or you move on and look for something else. Well, at the same time, what you mentioned, and I uh, truly, truly agree that all the time we market ourselves. And in these terms, it has nothing to do with like selling products or not, but we are marketing in whichever field we are working in, whichever relationships we are of communication, we are marketing yourself. And even if as a dancer, as ballet dancers, maybe we don't have power immediately or in the short term to change perception to this profession, but what is in our power also is to how we react and how we present ourselves and of course I don't know exactly how in Egypt in terms of being a working dancer I've never like worked in Egypt but around the world what I'm pretty sure like as a dancer we are in control how our specific audience right now in front of us will perceive us because that will depend on our behavior. And I had many experiences and uh, cases in my career too, that I even remember like one restaurant that uh, there was a dancer before me who uh, by gossips, I don't know how sure true or not, but by gossips, there was a lot of gossip that she was kind of combining dancing and some other activities. And I was cautioned that, oh, people probably will perceive you like that too in this restaurant because they're just used to like the audience that goes there. And I never ever had anything like that. Like, and uh, like, it all depends on the dancer also, how right now in front of us people will, okay, they may try to behave, but how they will continue of what they will be allowed it also depends on us and that's what in our power to change and if all dancers will kind of uh first of all remember about that and their power 
what's in their power, then eventually, hopefully, maybe one day in, okay, maybe many years, but maybe it will be shifting and changing. Well, this is much bigger than a dance, okay? And this is much bigger than than belly dance. Um, okay, I just, I had a whole bunch of thoughts on that. Um, right, so there is a spectrum, right? And as you said, it is very much up to the dancer how she's going to present this art. Is she going to display something that's vulgar, um, something that is combined with, let's say, stripping, which, you know, unfortunately, and I do say unfortunately, there are a handful of dancers in Cairo right now who have that background, that background of stripping or, or being go-go dancers. And, you know, that that's fine. It's a form of entertainment. It exists. I have nothing against it. I don't like to see it mixed with belly dance. Uh, for two reasons, for reasons of cultural purity, number one. Number two, because it takes a dance that's already not very accepted on a, you know, moral, ethical, cultural level, and it drags it down even further. Um, Again, you have to be very aware of your audience, and your audience is mainly people from that part of the world. Do you want to offend them, or do you want to entertain them? What is your point? Are you coming with an agenda? Are you coming to throw this in their face and show them how misogynistic they are if they don't accept it and they don't like it? Or are you trying to entertain them? Are you trying to learn from them? And so that, that your attitude toward it is a lot. And, you know, I, I see both tendencies in Cairo right now. I do see a lot of dancers going genuinely trying to learn Egyptian style. And I really, I applaud them. Um, it's not easy. A lot of it has to do with soaking up the language and soaking up the culture. Uh, once you once you get to that point where you can become comfortably fluent in the Egyptian dialect, you start to sort of then mimic their, their body language and their gestures and even just their posture and how they carry their bodies. And I'm not even talking about, you know, how Egyptian dancers carry themselves. No, just Egyptian people on the street. And once that, once you absorb that almost subconsciously, it comes out in your dance and it makes you more of an authentic dancer. Um, so yes, everything is a spectrum, right? There are dancers that are extremely vulgar. There are dancers that are a little bit more classy and everything in between. Um, I think that we are the ones that are very in tune to this nuance and this spectrum. We as dancers, we can sort of put things in categories and say, okay, this is a more respectable presentation of this dance. Okay, this is a little too vulgar. And there's a whole bunch of fights that start on Facebook over it. I'm not concerned with that. What I'm concerned with is how do audiences react, even when they see a respectable dancer. On on some level, they can make a distinction. They can say, okay, this is a much classier performance than something else. But at the end of the day, what kind of woman are you in their eyes? At the end of the day, that is the judgment that doesn't change. Um, we're talking about millennia of of cultural wiring, and and I think there's you know I think there's a lot of biological wiring too to this. And and this is a huge conversation. It would take hours and. and you know, maybe for another time, but basically to, to simplify it, not too many men in your audience would take you home to mama. Let's just put it that way. I don't care if you're wearing 
a one-piece dress, you're not showing cleavage, and you're doing a very classic performance to Uncle Sum, not too many men would consider you serious relationship or wife material. And you could say that's neither here nor there, that's irrelevant, I'm not looking to pick up men, I'm not saying that you are, or that that's your goal. I'm, I'm looking at it from the perspective of male audience members, and even female audience members, who have the same judgment most of the time. Um, it is what it is. And going back to my earlier point, we know that. So if you choose to do this kind of work, you're going to be up against that. Um, again, not saying that you are looking for someone or that is your goal. I'm just saying that that is their vantage point. That is how they're looking at it, with very few exceptions. There are exceptions, but not that many. So I just, I need to put that out there. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Like, it's not, uh, it's... It's so interesting, like it's so many different things, like what we as dancers are trying to deliver and what we are aiming for. And from another side, understanding that there are many stereotypes from the side, from the audience uh, members and uh, trying to navigate this dance career, like basically um, meeting both and trying to change and influence and somehow still create a great art that will not only be enjoyed by one side, but hopefully by both, by us as a performers and by our audience members as audience members. Well, yeah, but there's two, there's two aspects to this, right? Like I have never said that audiences don't enjoy watching. Of course they love it. They die for it. They can't help themselves, but that other aspect of it, judging the person, not the artist. So they see, they see two entities here. They see the artist and then they see the person again through their own biases and through their own um, subjective filters. Right. Mm. So the person is the woman who is doing this dance and they make all kinds of assumptions about her. The artist is a little more, that's a little more of an objective persona. She either knows how he or she either knows how to dance or they don't, right? They can either entertain and be really good at it or or they can't. So yes. Um, and that's a distinction I should have made a little earlier in this conversation is that yeah, there there is the artist in it and there is the the person in it. And both are being judged. Um, fairly or unfairly, that's you know, up to how you view the world. But it is happening. You also mentioned that when you came back to U.S., you also were performing uh, there in nightclubs. What did you feel as a performer the most striking difference after so many years performing in Cairo? Uh, the biggest one is that everything here is to canned music. So... <laughs> That was a challenge in the beginning. Um, so used to working with a live band, and God, I miss them, and they were so good. So you, you just don't have that here. And the, the musicians that are here, with all due respect, they're really, really not that good. They've been out of their countries for decades, most of them. And maybe you know, music was a hobby on the side, and it still is. So they've never gotten to the point where they're really skilled. Um, they've never gotten to the point where that artistry and that natural talent just takes over. Um, 
There are exceptions, I have to say. I found uh, two keyboard players here in, in Tampa that are phenomenal, that could easily work in Cairo. <laughs> um, that is the exception. And, and from the skill level of the musicians here, there just aren't that many. So most of the gigs here are the can music. Um, I will say it is easier. There, there isn't a fraction of the BS that I had to deal with in Cairo. Um, I don't have to deal with a manager. I don't have to deal with agents. I don't have to deal with people ripping me off and lying to me about how much gigs really cost. I don't have to have all this artificial representation as though I can't speak for myself. Um, so in that aspect, it's, it's great because I'm in control of everything. And in terms of audience, since we were talking about audience a lot... <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's funny because my audiences here are all Arab, um, mainly Egyptian and Iraqi. Um, in Cairo, of course, you have Egyptian audiences, but you have a lot more what we well, what we call over there foreigners. You've got people from Europe and Asia and India and all over the world because, of course, Cairo is a tourist destination and a belly dancer is a tourist attraction over there. So. Your audiences are much more mixed. Here, it is strictly Arab, which is great. Mm, that was unexpected. I would, uh, I would uh, <laughs> expect opposite that in US you'll have more like mixed non-Arabic audience. Uh, but I assume if it's Arabic, like restaurant or club, that would make total sense. <laughs> well, right, because yeah, I mean, mainly the only places that have belly dancing here are. Arabic clubs and hookah places, and guess who goes to those places? Arabs. So that's actually really nice. Mm. And like in terms of program, I'm curious, like I put in just the same kind of structure of program as you would perform years before in Cairo, or you still kind of adapt because it's different. It's like with recorded music, it's, I mean, for Arabic audience, but I don't know, maybe a community of Arabic audience in USA, maybe something different too, like any kind of like differences in like nuances of structuring your program or quite the same. Well, I've kind of imposed myself um, on the people who hire me. Like, I remember when I first was hired for gigs, they wanted to tell me what music to dance to and what my costume should look like. And I was like, no, <laughs> no. Uh, I am fresh off the boat from Cairo. I know what I'm doing way more than you think I do, way more than what you know about the dance. So I remember this one particular place that hired me. They were Egyptian. They literally gave me a list of songs to dance to, and they were all from, like, 2002. I was like, um, no. <laughs> I have all the latest music. In terms of costumes, trust me, you're going to like them. So, you know, there was a little bit of tense negotiation at the beginning and, and having to assert myself and, and take control of the situation. And after my first show, they were like, oh, wow, we, we had never seen that level of dancing before and that level of professionalism. Okay, we don't have that around here. Obviously, you know what you're doing. And then there was a shift in attitude. Go ahead, take control. You do what you want. I'm like, thank you. Uh, the other thing is that you have a more diverse Arab audience. So it's not only Egyptian. We have a lot of Iraqis. There's a huge Iraqi community here, actually. Uh, sprinkling of Lebanese and Syrians. So I've had to diversify my show. I have learned Iraqi dance 
I love it. I'm crazy about it. I think it's awesome. Um, so I've been doing that. And every now and then, throw in a Lebanese or Syrian song. So it's changed in that respect for me. And it's, it's good because I'm, I'm diversifying my skill set. And I still haven't had to resort to wings and fan veils and candles and swords and all these, you know, these cheap tricks and, you know, no offense to anyone who does them. It's just really not my style. Um, so I'm, I'm happy that I've been able to do, diversify my skill set in a more authentic way. Mm. I also remember that you were uh, quite a fan of discovering and learning a lot about Mahraganat and you were even teaching a lot and uh, moving, for instance, uh, like performing in U.S. Do you include those kind of elements into your show too? Especially with uh, like seeing people requesting the songs from like 2002, 2001, <laughs> like more old songs. Did you um, include that element into your program? Yeah, I I can't not dance to Shabi and Mahraganat. It's my thing. I love it. Um, they they like that music too. They may be unaware. They're not keeping up with every new song that comes out. But when I play it, they like it. Um, and a lot of the audience members, you know, they're, they're only recently immigrated. So they're more in tune with the scene, with the music scene over there. So they know what's out. And yeah, you can never go wrong with Mahragan and Shabi. And so I always do that. Mm. Um, yeah, I have to tone that down a little bit if I have a more diverse audience. Like Mahragan is the kind of thing that doesn't really translate. Uh, Syrians don't usually like it. Lebanese don't usually like it. Iraqis don't understand it. They don't like it. And, and vice versa. That's, that's something I've noticed is that Arabs from different countries do not like each other's music for the most part. Um, Umkulsum and Abdul Halim, yes, that is a little more universal. But all of the other stuff, oh, and George Wasuf, of course. You know, Egyptians love him, even though he's not Egyptian. But other than the really classic stuff, they don't generally like each other's music. Um, so that's why I really have to pay attention to who my audience is. And I will, I will cater to that. I remember a couple of my first gigs. Like I said, we have a lot of Iraqis here in, in Tampa and Clearwater. And a couple of my first gigs were in Iraqi-owned places with Iraqi customers and well hey they wanted a belly dancer and I had just come back from Egypt and belly dance is Egyptian and you know that's my bias so I went in there with all Egyptian music and the customers were like what are you doing why I had one of them come up to me and say why are you so racist all you do is dance to Egyptian music hello we're Iraqi and I'm like yeah good point um So it was, it was the customers that sat down with me and, and introduced me to that world of Iraqi dance. So I approached it from that angle, not even from like YouTube or taking classes with, you know, people, other dancers. I, I just I started listening to the music and um, learning from them, watching them dance. And that's what, I, that's what I love. Even in Egypt, I would watch how just normal people dance, how they, how they just enjoy themselves at a wedding or at a party, uh, because it's very non-technical and it's very unrefined but you get the feeling of the movement there and that's what I did here I would watch Iraqi men actually not even women I would because women don't really dance here um I watched the men dance and, and what they do in their movements and I just fell in love with it and I started to pick it up and follow it and then of course you know you add in the hair tossing and all this stuff yeah but um it's been really great in that respect mm -hmm. 
observing how typically people dance, it's one of the, like, uh, those ways of learning that we keep hearing again and again. But, like, if someone asks, okay, how to do it physical, like, on practice, like, what do you mean observing, like, how people dance? Search on YouTube? Or in your case, like, did you stay after your performance at the club and watched? Or, like, how the process is, uh, in this case, going of learning to dance? Yeah, I mean, it's just... um... So when, when people come up to dance with me when I'm performing, I mentally slip out of performance mode and I slip into student mode and observation mode. And I, and I watch them and I copy them, actually. Um, and I would do this in Cairo all the time. I let them take center stage. And as I'm, yes, I keep moving, right? My body keeps moving, but I'll just do one movement over and over again so that I don't have to think about it and I can watch what they're doing. And then I'll copy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you do this over and over again, it becomes second nature. And then of course, you know, I'll, I'll take it home and I'll play with it in my free time and, um, try to add my own touches to it. Um, you know, maybe see what other dancers are doing, um, online, but yeah, I really, my, my, the base for me, the beginning for me is, is watching just regular people from that region dance. Because it's all, for me, it's all in the feeling, it's all in the posture, it's all in the, the emphasis, the emphasis up or down, how is the body, you know, swaying, all these little tiny details. That's what I look at. And that's what I try to emulate. And um, with respect to shabby dancing and Mahrabanat, that is exactly how it happens. And I, I wouldn't have it any other way, because I could have taken classes with quote-unquote masters, and I would have gotten this more, like, orientalized uh, feminine version, uh, stage version of Sabi, which is what so many of these teachers are teaching and that's all they know. So I I do see the advantage in just copying people, watching people um, and taking it from them. And that's when it starts to look more authentic, more street, more folkloric, more, more real. And that's something I would add here because when I was observing, like every time I watch your videos of uh, Shabi, like it feels different from many other like dancers who perform like, on stage and put their videos out. So uh, that's interesting that you actually learn it like this way. And the moment of audience participation in your dance is a perfect spot for us to pick up some movements, uh, uh, maybe sometimes even gestures or manners uh, from. Um, from actual people, like not professional dancers necessarily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a unique approach. Um, it's much easier to do that when you're living in Egypt um, because you just have so many parties and so many opportunities to see that. And the people, they're in their own country. So it's so natural. You can, you know, here in the U.S. or in different countries, there are Arab immigrants, obviously. And, you know, they'll get up and dance and some of them are really good, but again, if they've been out of their countries for so long, they um, they become a little more detached from their culture, from the music, from from the dance, from from even from the language. Like I've I've noticed, it's really strange. Some Arab immigrants, if they've been here for a while, their their native language just goes down the drain. It's like, how do you forget your native language? But okay, it happens. It happens. They you know they can become very Americanized. Um, some of them. So. Uh, but still, but still, you'll always have those immigrants who are still very connected to their home countries. And 
I think it's just a good idea to, to watch, observe, and, and mimic. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting uh, way of expanding, like also your uh, dense potential, dense vocabulary. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Well, I kind of feel that we are having this conversation right now at another change and another shift in your life and your dance also journey. <laughs> Last one, you just moved to US and now you mentioned that you just a couple of months ago, you decided to put dance on the uh, kind of like a backhold for now for a little while, which is uh, another very brave also experiment and to see how, how it will influence your life and even re-identify yourself, not as a dancer, but first of all, who you are and acknowledging that dance is just part of your life. That's very brave. And uh, I just felt like, oh, it's kind of symbolic. We're again doing the interview right now at this beginning of this uh, uh, shift and <laughs> chapter of your life. <laughs> yeah. But I know that you were teaching uh, before and um, like teaching online, uh, regardless of the world situation, just something that you actually did uh, previously. But uh, for now, for dancers who may be curious and want maybe to study with you or connect online, like are you still doing uh, classes or any kind of like some plans for maybe workshops or something like that or is it like for now temporarily completely on the on hold um well i am doing private coaching right now um i'm not going to turn down any like workshop opportunities but uh i've really just sort of um decreased not I've actually cut out all of my gigging right now all of my performances and I'm not doing regular teaching online I do plan on getting back on track with that uh hopefully within this month uh, but yeah I am open and available for for workshops festivals uh, I enjoy it very much and I really miss that part of life from before COVID now that things are sort of normalizing uh, you know it would be really nice if we could pick this up and not just make everything online there's huge disadvantages to learning dance online. There's advantages, but there's also huge disadvantages. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we all know what they are. So yeah, um, I will get back into the teaching aspect of it, certainly. So um, for those uh, people who may want to connect uh, with you to either some festival opportunity or maybe for private coaching that uh, you are doing right now, what's the best way to connect with you? Is it social media uh, no, Instagram, Facebook. <laughs> yeah, they can reach me um, on Facebook. My name is Diana Esposito. That's my real name. Uh, Facebook forced me to change it years ago. Or they can send me an email, lunaofcairo at gmail.com. Luna of Cairo, obviously, is one word. Um, yeah, um, I think I'm pretty easy to get in touch with. Uh, uh, even on Instagram, Luna of Cairo official separated with underscores all of those words mm. so, yeah i'm easy enough to find <laughs> just also wanted to make sure because uh, so people don't have impression that you're completely out of dance which i hope will never happen because you're such a great dancer and so also generous teacher and also i will add that uh, you're also doing great translations uh, 
uh, for Arabic songs. So for anyone who needs that, you're also the source and like a person to go. <laughs> That's for sure. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, no, I'm not completely out of the scene. I'm just taking a little break. And um, yeah, I also, I still teach Egyptian Arabic classes, which have been going really successfully. Um, I have a couple of students who have been with me for about almost two years now, and we are having really uh, advanced conversations. We're talking about the Taliban invading Afghanistan, you know, so um, we have been making a lot of progress and uh, definitely enjoying that. But yeah, I am, I am still here. I will be coming back, you know, with a little more vigor uh, soon. Well, little break, it's always necessary for all of us, regardless of the sphere of activity. Sometimes it needs like sort of put on hold to come back, hopefully with a fresher mind and uh, better like understanding or approach of where it exactly it, it places in our life. So before I ask uh, our final question, I would uh, like to wish you all the best with this new chapter and new change. Uh, and uh, we should that it leads uh, only to a better place and uh, with more experience uh, I'm sure it will lead even if not immediately but eventually to a, a better place where you feel uh, most of your potential in all spheres of your life is fully realized and uh, finding yourself uh, fully happy not only not only as a dancer but first of all first of all as a person. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I wish you the same as well. Oh, thank you. And I would like to summarize with our traditional question. I know we talked about it years ago on our previous episode, but it would be very cool to uh, see what you would think about it today and what would be your answer, the same or different. And the question is, what makes you fall in love with belly dance? again and again so you keep doing it for so many years even if it's temporarily on hold (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) the music um i don't know if that was my answer last time but um that has always been the reason i fell in love with the music before i fell in love with the dance um it is so compositionally rich um it's so beautiful. You know, I, I don't have to explain that we all know this, right? I think a lot of us feel this. Although some of it are, some of us are more drawn to the dance than we are to the music. I'm more drawn to the music. I've always been, I always will be, uh, even when I'm not dancing, you know, I listen to the music and it just, how could you not move? I think the reason that I got into this dance was that, well, I had always been a dancer. I'd done ballet and jazz and you name it, everything. And then I heard this music and it just really, really spoke to my soul. And I was like, well, I have the ability to dance. I know how to dance. I might as well learn how to this kind of music. Um, Perhaps if I didn't have a dance background and I heard this music, I would still love it. But maybe I wouldn't have learned how to dance. I don't know. But yeah, for me, it's all about the songs, the instrumentation, um, and the lyrics to a lesser extent, but really it's, it's the music. 
that's it for today guys but before you go away don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends and if you post it on social media please tag me and our guest because we love seeing who is listening to the podcast thanks for being with us and i'll see you next week same time same place